if you've uh, if you've been living in a cave, uh, just a big announcement. We are now in what's called Holy Week um, by many different churches. Essentially, we're looking at the, the countdown to Easter, and traditionally, this is what? What's this Sunday called? Palm Sunday, right? And so here's what I thought. You know, I think what we're going to do today is I want to sort of walk through Holy Week. What I want to do is this. I want us to start with Palm Sunday. What are we talking about? And I want us to get to Thursday. Now, next week, I really hope all of you return. I hope you grab someone, you know, whether they're willing or not, just grab them and bring them to this place. We are going to be talking about the culmination of Jesus Christ. And when I say culmination, what I'm saying is all the factors that come crashing down on this one special weekend and what it means what it means universally, and then what it means to you specifically. Also, I'm going to show you something. I discovered something in 2005. I discovered it in one of the most unlikely of places. And I want to show it to you. I want to, uh, I want to talk about it. And I know you're probably already thinking, you know, oh, I know what you're going to show us. You're going to show us that you came to Jesus Christ. You know, that kind of thing. Nope, that was 1989. Nope, this, was, this is different. And... Um, well, that's all I'm going to say. You should just come and see what that's about. There's your, there's your little hook. Um, what I would love for you to do is this. We're going to be bouncing around between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called what? Oh, nice. So for those of you who are visiting, we have, we've actually been working our way through Jesus' life since January. It's the longest series I've ever put together in my life. And it's worked its way up all the way to Easter. And the whole idea of this series was, what does it mean to know Jesus? Now, I don't know if each and every one of you have drawn a little bit closer to Jesus, but I'm here to tell you right now, I love this series. We've been able to talk about Jesus Christ, his life, his impact. We've talked about his miracles, his parables. We've talked about the government systems around the, all of this. We've talked about the territory, the land, the people, all this stuff, trying to draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And then... For the past 23 days, 24 days, I've encouraged you to log into your Bible app and endorse the plan that we've been reading through, which is called the Harmony of the Gospel in 30 Days. And many of you, I'd say probably most of you, have been walking alongside, all right? God bless my mother-in-law, Peggy. She gives a comment after every reading, and I love it. So it's fantastic. Don't stop. But you know what? Hopefully you've been in the Word, and we're drawing closer and closer to Easter. Well, what we're going to learn today is that all of what you're learning goes much further than just Easter. It's not like it all comes to a screeching halt as of next Sunday. But this is a very exciting Sunday. It starts with this thing called the triumphal entry. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love it if you could turn to Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to start walking us through the days of this particular week only about 2,000 years ago, what was actually occurring down in the area of Jerusalem. So Matthew 21 says, when they had approached, now this is Jesus and his disciples, all right? There's a point in Luke, I believe it's Luke chapter 9, where Jesus, who's normally up at the northern part of this land, this Middle Eastern area, in this area called Galilee, he focuses most of his ministry up in Galilee. Now the temple is in Jerusalem, which is in the south. You have this little lake that they call the Sea of Galilee or the uh, Sea of Knesseret or some, some other names. Uh, and then there's this, this river that comes down. Anybody know the name of that river? The 
Jordan, good, yeah. I should start handing out candy or something. Anyway, uh, the Jordan River, and then you have this huge body of water, which is really nasty, but it's fun to float in, called what? The Dead Sea. Okay, so there you have it, right? You have the Sea of Galilee, comes down to the Dead Sea, and on this side, this map's facing you, on this side, which would be just uh, west of the Jordan, you have a land called Samaria, all right? And then Judea is below, Galilee is above, and then on the other side of the Jordan is this thing called the Transjordan, all right? And that's kind of the general topography. But see, Jesus did most of his ministry in the top part. So now, in Luke 9, it says Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he now knew what was about to happen, and his ministry would start to take him down toward Jerusalem. At this time, you have to understand, many people will say that Jesus had a spike in his popularity, around Luke 9, all right? I don't think that was a spike at all. I think he's more popular than ever. I think his popularity continued to grow and grow and grow. I think what many scholars are referring to is the fact that he also had a tremendous amount of enemies, all right? Now, just because he has more enemies doesn't mean that he has less popularity, you know? And so he's a very, very well-known person by this time, and he has his, his disciples with them, and so when it says, they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and they did just as Jesus had instructed them. Now this is why I love the synoptic gospels. When we say synoptic, we're talking about the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written in a way where um, you'll see a lot of the same stories, right? And so in Mark's version, he fills this in, and also Luke, he says, uh, some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing <laughs> untying this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. So back to verse 7 of the Matthew account. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them out among the road, and the crowds were going ahead of them. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now Luke's account includes the following. It said that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why would they say that? Because what are they, what are, what are, what's the crowd saying? This is him. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. They're all very familiar with their history and with the scriptures. They're saying, this is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the Pharisees, They've heard it over and over and over. They're sick of it. And they're like, would you rebuke your disciples? And of course, I don't even think, I'd be surprised if Jesus even heard them because they're shouting so loudly. Jesus says, oh no, he does hear him. Sorry. Jesus says, he goes, I tell you, if these become silent, the rocks will cry out. The stones will cry out, right? This is a huge triumphant moment, the triumphant entry. Luke also mentions that Jesus, though, before he even gets to these particular gates, remember they were at uh, the Mount of Olives. So just so that you understand, um, it's really, it was a huge blessing for me to go to, oh, down to Israel because I got to stand over where the Mount of Olives is and whatnot. And so you have Jerusalem, 
And essentially, the Mount of Olives is actually to the east of Jerusalem, and there's a valley that separates the two. Um, and you can look almost, almost directly inside of Jerusalem, I'm right, but the, the mountain is right there. And so as they're coming, they can see Jerusalem. And you can picture, as, as they're getting closer, Jesus, according to Luke, it says that um, he begins to weep. And he, he weeps over this, uh, the particular city. Uh, let's see. Oh, sorry, sorry. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up. They said, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet um, Jesus from Nazareth. Uh, but Jesus had a lament before he even got that far to those particular gates because Jerusalem was so dear to who he, who he was and, and the relationship that he had with Jerusalem. He would lament all the time about how the prophets had come and they had prophesied to Jerusalem that the people always needed to turn their hearts back toward God, but there was always this wishy-washy relationship that would exist with the people. And it broke his heart. Mark states that then Jesus would go into the city. Everyone's crying out. They're laying palms down. He'd go into the city. He would go right up to the temple. And this is where everything gets a little fuzzy because John... <laughs> John has one version of what happens next, and then Matthew and Mark and all the rest of them do, but I like Mark's account. Mark simply says, Jesus went into the temple, and he looked around carefully. Now, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was looking with some disdain because of what would happen the next day, but he looks around carefully, and then it says that he left, and he spent the night in Bethany, and Bethany would also be just a little bit further east of the Mount of Olives, about a 30-minute walk, I would guess, Right? And that's where they stayed for the night. Now, they would be staying in Bethany for several nights, all right? But it's almost like if you were going to go to a great big event and there was absolutely nowhere to stay, right? Because all, everyone's coming to Jerusalem at this time. Very, very popular. Why? The Passover, right? And so they're having to stay in Bethany, and that's where they stay for that night. Comes Monday. So here we go into Monday. There are essentially two events that you'll read about in the scriptures that happen on Monday. The first is this. On the next day, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 11, on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. This is Jesus. Jesus became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was the season for figs. And he said to it, No one ever, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark's account says that the disciples were listening. Okay, what we're going to find out is it was a little bit shocking for them. But Jesus basically curses this fig tree right at that particular moment. They go into Jerusalem, and all the synoptic gospels record this particular event. I'm sure it was a bit of a shocker. Uh, it says in Mark chapter 11, he entered the temple. He began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, why would they be selling doves, right? Yeah, for sacrifices, exactly. And, and money changers, what's that all about? Well, what would happen is this, is that when you go into the temple, there were um, all sorts of different duties that the, the priests would have. There was a temple tax. Everyone was expected to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax had to be paid with a specific currency to the temple, which means that you had to exchange money, whatever that might be. It could be Roman currency. It could be Greek currency. It doesn't matter what the currency was. You would exchange that for temple currency, and then you would pay 
the temple tax. Sometimes you would contribute to the work of the temple, or you would use it to, uh, to buy different um, things that you would use for the sacrifice, uh, incense, oil, wine, those kinds of things. And then with the doves, that was a very common sacrifice. According to Leviticus, back in Leviticus 12, it says that, you know, for women who needed to purify, that might be because of menstruation, or birthing a child, because we see Mary and Joseph going to the temple, and they had to sacrifice two doves. That was what you would do. And so sometimes women would come and they would need to actually get the doves that they needed to sacrifice at that time. And so it was a very profitable business uh, for a lot of the priests. And so Jesus goes in there, and what he sees, though, is that even though you can look at that and you can say, well, that's kind of valid, you know, it was crooked. I mean, this was all about the profit. This was all about making a profit so that people could then honor God. It defiled the temple. And I love it because what Jesus is pointing out is that even though you have this temple, which represents the old law, and Jesus has said repeatedly that I come not to destroy the old law, but to fulfill it. And then as the apostles would go into the world and begin to preach the new law, the law that God put within our hearts, the temple essentially would become more or less obsolete. But Jesus still cares for it. Why? Because it represents the holiness of God. And he's not going to allow mankind to come in and defile that holiness. And even though this is his final week, he opens up a can and he cleanses out the temple. And all the authors were able to write about it. So then they eventually go back to Bethany. So there's Monday for you. Busy day, right? Go back to Bethany. The next day is Tuesday. Matthew records in verse 20. This is back uh, Matthew 21, verse 20. Seeing, oh yeah, here we go. So they come back from Bethany on Tuesday back into Jerusalem. And as they're coming into Jerusalem, they notice the fig tree, all right? It's not looking so good. It's actually kind of destroyed. And as Matthew records, seeing this, the disciples were amazed. And they asked Jesus and said, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Mark adds these words. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone that you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins as well. And then this verse is the very last verse of this particular chapter in Mark 11. Some manuscripts do not have it, but this is what it says. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. And I think that is so fascinating that now he's talking about the idea of forgiveness as you are praying. The idea that, guess what? Your prayers have unspeakable power. And there would be quite a bit of praying both in this week We've seen prayers in the, in, uh, before this particular week. But John 17 is going to be pretty much the last recorded prayer of Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging his disciples to pray. Even later when we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, pray, pray, pray. Jesus comes back to the fact there is unspeakable power in prayer. We're going to dive into the subject of prayer in two weeks. But I think it's fascinating that when we are talking about this power of prayer, Jesus makes it clear that when you're praying, you first forgive whoever you're holding a grudge against. There's something that gets in the way of the power of that prayer. 
and that is your lack of forgiveness. Tuesday would be filled with all sorts of different teachings. You would see him speaking again in parables. You would have the parable of the two sons, the vineyard owner, and uh, the, the caretakers, the evil caretakers of that particular vineyard, um, and how they treat his son when he, he, he sends his son. The marriage feast would be spoken of in Matthew 22. These are all things that are being taught in both Tuesday and I think probably also in Wednesday. But you would also have some interesting battles with Pharisees. They would, I mean, they're furious. They're incredibly jealous. They hate him, like, so passionately, they're willing to join forces. The Pharisees are now going to become friends with the Sadducees, all right, and the scribes, and anyone else who's, you know, somewhat jealous of Jesus Christ. And so they gather around him, and in Matthew chapter 22, you see them peppering Jesus with three different questions. Now, it sounds like they really worked hard to come up with these particular questions. They're like, oh, man, we got we to gotta catch him. And so the first question that they ask him is this, they they say, you know, is it, wh- what are your thoughts on paying tax? You know, is it lawful for us to pay tax to Caesar? And so they, they're like, what do you think? And it's one of those, you know, there's not a right answer type of, type of a riddle. I mean, that's what I'm saying in terms of them trying to, to trap. According to their human thinking, they're like, well, this is going to be great. Because if he says that, yeah, you should be paying taxes to Caesar, what are they going to say? They're going to try to discredit them with the other Jews because the Jews and the Romans, they're not exactly on good terms. The Jews submit to the Romans because they have to. We talked about that several lessons ago, right? But it doesn't mean that they're buddies. So as soon as they can show the people, oh man, this guy's in in league with Rome, right? Then they might be able to cut down on the popularity that he has. But then what if he says the opposite? What if he's like, no, I don't think you should pay taxes to Caesar, right? What are they going to do then? Yeah, exactly. It's like you're an insurrectionist. You know, this is treason. All right, arrest him now because he hates Caesar. You know, that kind of thing. And of course, Jesus, he sees through this the whole time. He takes this one. He's like, who's, whose face is on this? And they're like, well, that's Caesar. And he goes, so pay to Caesar what's owed to Caesar, right? And give to God what's owed to God. And they're, <laughs> they're kind of like, okay, we didn't see that coming. So then they go to another question. And this time, the Pharisees are like, all right, Sadducees, we hate you guys, but you guys go ahead, you're up. And so the Sadducees say, all right, we're going to talk about the thing that we love to talk about, which is that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees, that's why you learn as in ch- you know, Bible class, they are sad, you see, because there is no resurrection, right? And so they question Jesus, and they give this incredibly stupid problem where they're talking about, you know, who's married to who in in heaven, and it's a really complicated problem, and their whole point is, no matter how you answer this particular problem of if you die, do you have this wife or or not, it's silliness. It's silliness, because any type of an answer is going to show, you know what, this whole idea of a resurrection is stupid, right? And they use scripture to back it up, and I'm not going to get into a lot of it right now, but Jesus then answers it with scripture, pointing out to them Scripture all the way from Moses, where, G- where God is saying to Moses, I, I'm the God of Jacob and Isaac. And he's, he's saying, God isn't saying he's the God of those people as if they were dead. They're very much alive, which means they're probably with God, which means there's a resurrection. And of course, that kind of they, they don't know what to do with that particular thing either. And so they're like, okay, all right, anybody else? Because we're, we're not doing so well. And so this one particular man steps forward, 
And he simply says this. He says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And this is really important. He says, what is the greatest commandment? And what's Jesus' answer? Well, before I get to that, you got to keep in mind, the scholars and the scribes, I've told you this before, they have already been racking up all these different laws, right? From the Torah itself, they have 613 commandments that they can discern from the old law. And many times, I'm sure they sit around tables and think about, okay, which of these is greater than the other, right? And so this question is meant to sort of divide. He's like, which one is the greatest? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And then the second is like it, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's fascinating is, is that the one who asked this question listens to the answer of Jesus, and he goes, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, in fact, he knows exactly what Jesus is referencing from the old law. And Jesus looks at this particular man, and he sees that he's educated, and he even responds in such a, an interesting way. Let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength, and the, um, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, right? So then when the man responds, he says, you are right, teacher. And impressed, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So the third question that's meant to trap Jesus, it's almost as though, I think he might have made a believer, right? Which makes you wonder how the Pharisees were viewing that particular guy, right, afterwards. Um, but then Jesus then quizzes them. He's like, well, let me ask you a particular question. And he asks them a question about David, uh, King David, simply saying, you know, well, uh, when King David is saying, you know, my Lord refers, the Lord refers to my Lord, who is he, who is he talking about? And he's talking about the fact he is both, the, the Christ that they are waiting for has a duplicity, that he is both Lord of someone like King David, but also the son of King David. And it just, it blows their mind. It's almost like they can't imagine how this man would have so much knowledge. And it says to them after that, it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any more questions. And then Mark says this, and I love this. He's, he includes, and the large crowd enjoyed listening. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was kind of a show. Moving into Wednesday, you had other teachings, the widow's coin, the future of Jerusalem in Mark chapter 13, the return of Christ. And then there was a woman who would then come and anoint his feet. He would visit this particular um, home, Simon the leper, and he would have his feet anointed. Now, it's interesting because John also has an account where Jesus' feet uh, is, are anointed, but it's Mary. And Lazarus is there, and Martha is there, and his disciples are there. And there's a lot of debate about whether the, uh, these are the same occurrence. I don't think they are. I think you're looking at two different things that are, that are happening in that particular spot. But at this time, you'll also see that there's a plot to kill Jesus. And the original plot, just so you know, comes out of Mark chapter 14. It says, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot for the people. Did you know this? So their original idea was to just go and kidnap him. Kind of just make him disappear and kill him that particular way. But then a miracle, in their view, Judas comes walking in. And in Luke chapter 22, it says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the 
officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray them and uh, to betray him. And, and to, uh, he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. In other words, help them recognize what's happening. And then you get to Thursday. Now, Thursday is called Monday Thursday. The word Monday is derived from the Latin word mon- mandatum, mandatum, which sounds, does anybody have any guesses what, uh, Dad, you can guess too. Mandatum, what does that word mean? It almost, almost sounds like mandatory, right? But it, it essentially means a commandment. It essentially means a commandment. So why would this be called Commandment Thursday? We'll get to that in just a second. In Luke chapter 22, it says that the f- uh, then came the first day of the unleavened bread on the Passover lamb, and Jesus sent Peter and John, and he said, go prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They're preparing this meal, and they're going to partake of the meal in the evening. And this is, um, this is Thursday. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you've entered the city, there will be a man. He will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room and prepare it there. Can you imagine? You get all those instructions and then you go in there and it all starts happening exactly as, you, as he says, you know, and they left and they found everything just as he had told them. And they began to prepare the Passover. Now, they would not eat the meal until the sun had set. Right? This all comes from Exodus chapter 12. And you got to remember what the Passover is about. The Passover is based on of the 10th plague when the nation of Israel, well, the Hebrew nation was down in Egypt. They were under slavery. And Moses came down, let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't listen. There were 10 plagues, that one after the other, and Pharaoh would say, okay, enough, I'll let you go. And then his heart would be hard, and he'd say, no, I changed my mind. You're staying here. And it would happen over and over and over until the 10th plague. The 10th plague is called the Passover because it was the worst plague. Essentially, anybody who wouldn't take the blood of an unblemished lamb, okay, an unblemished lamb, they slaughter the lamb, they take the blood with a uh, branch of hyssop, they dip it in there, and they would paint the top of the doorframe. Later that night, the angel of death would go throughout the city, throughout the entire area. If it did not see the blood on the door, it would enter the household, and it would kill the firstborn child. But if it did see the blood on the mantle of the door, it would pass by, it would pass over. Moses at that time instructed the people very clearly. He said, listen, this plague's going to work. Like, he's going to let you go, but you're going to have to go fast. There should be no hesitation whatsoever. So when Pharaoh finally releases us, you don't even have time to cook. You don't even have time to to make bread. So if you're going to make bread, do it without any leaven, because it won't have time to rise, which is exactly what happened The plague did work. Pharaoh did let the people go. They gathered up all their belongings. They gathered up food. They even gathered up treasure, all right? They were looting the Egyptians. Some of the Egyptians went with them. Like, it was an enormous miracle, and there was a huge exodus. God delivered his people. 
And from that moment, they would have this celebration of the Passover, and Exodus 12 would tell them exactly how to do that. That in the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, before the sun sets, they would make the preparations for the meal. And then once the sun set, that is when they would begin to have the meal. So that's what we're looking at at this particular spot. Now I want you to go to John 13. One of the things I love about John, I feel like he writes in these different sections, which we now have as chapters, and they're just amazing stories. John 4 is an incredible story of the woman at the well. John 9 is an incredible story about a man born blind. John 13 is one of my favorite chapters. John 13 is Thursday. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. What a preface. He knew what was about to happen. And I love that John includes this fact that, you know what? These people, as frustrating as they were, as difficult as they were to lead, even knowing that they would betray, not just one person would betray, not just two people, almost all of them, that he loved them. And he knew it. This was his last good day. He was fully aware that once the sun would set, it would rise the next day, but by the time it would rise the next day, he would have already been betrayed. I have a personal theory that I don't think he was aware that he knew he would be betrayed with a kiss. It's my opinion. But he knew that he'd be betrayed. He knew he would be arrested. arrested. He knew that he would find himself in front of some big shot named Annas, who wasn't even the high priest of all things, but then eventually he would be brought to um, the Sanhedrin. He would stand trial there. He would be convicted in front of the Sanhedrin, which is this Jewish council thing, right? And then he would be taken elsewhere. And as the sun would rise, he would find himself in a place where Peter was in the vicinity and he would deny him three times. Jesus knew all of that. But at this moment, this is the sweet moment. This is the last meal which is why they call it the Last Supper, where he gets to be with these people, and he loves them. You know, I remember living in Atlanta. <laughs> there was one particular day where I told my wife, I said, hey, let's go to the beach. Let's just, let's just go. And she goes, well, why, why do you want to go right now? Truth be told, there was a hurricane that had come through, and actually it didn't make it inland at all. In fact, it was several hundred miles offshore. A friend of mine had already shown me how to surf, and I decided to buy, you know, a wetsuit. And I called him up and said, can I borrow your surfboard? Because I knew that if there was a storm offshore, that there would be some really big swell, all right? And I would go online, and sure enough, it was predicting huge waves, right? And so I told my wife, I said, let's go to the beach. And she was super sweet about it. She was like, okay, let's go, you know? So we got into our car. I put a surfboard on top of a PT Cruiser. You guys don't think PT Cruisers are cool? Look at it with a surfboard on top. So uh, we, we're driving down there, and we had our kiddos, right? And our, our, our kids, this is when they were sweet. <laughs> <This> <laughs> and they're in the back seat, and I'm sure they remember all of this. And so we go to this little island called Hunting Island, and, 
and I get the surfboard out and everything, and there's waves all over the place, and I go out there. I almost died that day. I have told that story. I got, I got caught up in a riptide. I didn't know what it was at the time because it pulls you parallel to the shore. It doesn't, like, suck you out into the ocean right away. I was like, what's going on? And eventually I got out of that, and my heart was beating. I was like, all right, enough of the surfing thing, right? But we made sandcastles that day, right? And we had lunch, and we had pictures of that. And I always look back on that day as a good day. And we had somebody paint us a, um, a picture of that day. And it's my three children, and the, they're holding hands, and McKenna's looking all goofy and everything, and the, they're holding hands, and, and they're sitting there. And every time we look at that picture, I think of that day because that was a good day. This is a good day. I think this is... I don't know why they call Good Friday Good Friday. They should call this Good Thursday. So in John chapter 13, picking up in verse 2, it says, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper and he laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. And I can't help but think that his heart was beating because he loves these guys. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and drying them with the towel that he had around him. Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus re replied, you don't understand what I am doing now, but someday you will. And Peter protested. He said, no. You will never wash my feet, good old Peter, right? And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So then Peter flips the other side. Oh, well then wash my hands and my head as well. Just wash my whole body. And Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. John, John makes such a, a point of it. It's like, not all of you, and we know what you're saying, John, for Jesus knew who would betray him. Got it. That is what he meant when he said, <laughs> not all of you are clean. Okay, thank you, John. Does he wash Judas' feet? Oh, yeah. And that's not all he does with Judas. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and he said, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Listen, this, this is how he's driving this point home. He says, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the master. You're not important than me. You better listen to what I'm telling you. You will wash each other's feet. You will serve those around you. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones that I've chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says the one who eats my food has turned against me. That was from Psalm 41. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah, and I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. And then Jesus does this. In Luke, I want us to flip to Luke 22, 
Jesus then says to them, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's like, I've earnestly desired it. For I say to you, I'll never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. When he had taken some bread, he gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. They don't know what's going on. We read that, and we read it over and over and over. Almost be, it be, almost becomes mechanical for us, Right? They're used to the Passover meal. What is he doing? And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And I've said this to you before. I think it comes after the resurrection when all of this comes crashing down. And the meaning of it starts to just pour over them. In the same way he took the cup after he'd eaten. And he said, this cup which is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in my blood. In verse 21, behold, the hand of the one who is betraying me is with mine on the table. Did he have, did he institute the Lord's Supper with Judas? Yes. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss amongst themselves, because that's kind of shocking, which of them it might be who is going to do this particular thing. You know, the, David writes in Psalm chapter 55 about when his own son Absalom was trying to kill him. Here's what he says. For it is not an enemy, these are the words of David, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, because then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal. The Septuagint, that's the Greek form of the Old Testament, reads one uh, of one soul with me, someone who was connected to me by soul, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked to the house of God in the throng. He's talking about a man named Ahithophel, not a very famous person, but he was a counselor that David had who was very close to him who then switched sides and went to Absalom's side. And so now this trusted person has now become his enemy. David is expressing what betrayal feels like. And you have to wonder how much of that, how much of that emotion is, is swelling up inside of Jesus. If you go back to John 13, you read Jesus had, uh, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And he testified and he said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at each other at a loss of knowing who, of which one he was speaking. And there was reclining next to Jesus one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Thank you, John. It was John. So Simon Peter gestured, Simon Peter, so Peter's probably sitting next to him. He, he gestures to, to John and he says to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He's assuming that because John is so close to Jesus that John might know a little bit of information. And so he, he says, what, who is it? And so John, leaning back toward Jesus in verse 25, says to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answers, he says, 
that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now, I'm not sure everyone heard this. I have a feeling that this is just a little bit of talk that's happening between just a few people. Probably just Jesus, John, Peter. All right? But he says, it'll be the one that I give this morsel to. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose that he had said this to them. For some were supposing, you know, Judas was the one who kept the money box, right? And that Jesus was saying to him, go buy the things that we have and need for the feast or something, or else that we should perhaps, you know, give something to the to the poor, because he leaves, right? And that's what they're assuming in their mind, you know? It's like, don't forget, we need bitter herbs, you know, that kind of thing. No, no. Judas leaves in a hurry. The word mandi, derived from this Latin word mandatum, means commandment, and here's why. In John 13, it says, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. And if you find like that's kind of a circular reasoning, read John 17. Verse 33 of John 13, my children, he's addressing it as they're still eating, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Is that a new commandment? I thought we just read that commandment. Earlier in the week, he was just questioned about this commandment. Right? Why is he telling them it's a new commandment? I'll read it to you again. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He draws the commandment to the source. It's why we call ourselves Echo. The reason that we love comes from a source. And we are celebrating that source. It is the love that's being poured out for us. And next week we're going to be talking about it a lot. But Jesus is saying to them, listen, as in the same way that I loved you, and you don't even know what it is yet. You haven't fathomed it. It's, it's like you, you can't even comprehend what's about to happen. It's going to shock you in many different ways over the next few days. And then you're going to realize the extent of that love. And in that extent of that love, you now have to love others. He would really draw this home for Peter later as, as a resurrected Lord in John 21, but we'll get there someday. <laughs> By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So not only are you supposed to reflect on the love given to you, it's a witness. It's a testimony. We talk about evangelism all the time, that you need to speak truth to other people. What about just loving other people? What about the manifestation of your love to somebody who doesn't deserve it? It speaks volumes about the source of that particular love. Simon Peter, he says, Lord, uh, that's all great about the commandments and everything, but where are you going? <laughs> Peter's, Peter's concerned. I mean, he's a, he's a sweet guy. And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow but you will follow later. Peter asked, well, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you now. And now we're looking at the second betrayal in Luke chapter 22. 
all of the guys were just, they were, uh, it says there arose a dispute about which of them is the greatest. This is still at that dinner, at that dinner. Isn't that funny? He washed their feet. He's telling them to love each other. He said, you have to serve one another. And then they're like, yeah, we should. Who's going to betray you? I know it's not me because I'm, I'm the greatest. <laughs> no, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. Like there's this dispute. Humans are so dumb, right? And so they're arguing about this. And Jesus finally is like, okay, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Let me remind you, the one who is greatest among you, you must become like the youngest. And the leader, like the servant, who whoever is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who just served you. You are those who stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's assuring them there is a place of greatness, but right now you will serve. And then he says this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you want have turned again, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Here's Peter. Look at his heart. He obviously loves Jesus. He's obviously wanting to do what's right. He wouldn't let him wash his feet. Then he wanted him to wash his whole body. He's like, I'll go with you wherever. I'll go to you, with you to death, right? And it's, this, is, this is a really, really huge point. I need all of us to consider what's the capacity, what's the capacity that we have to betray? What's our capacity to betray? We look at Judas and we say, yeah, Satan entered into him and we could see what's happening. What about Peter. Peter's saying all the right things. Earlier in the ministry, Jesus Christ says, upon you, I will what? Build my church. Look at who preaches the first sermon, right? That brings thousands of people. Is that a man who looks like he has a large capacity to betray? No. No. This is a disturbing piece of scripture because I wonder uh, about myself. I'm always saying, God, I am here for you. Glorify. May you be glorified. Should I build any type of pride inside of that, thinking that because I have that resolve, that now that somehow sets me apart from all of the craftiness and the schemes of Satan? What's the capacity that we have to betray? It's sad because Jesus obviously knows this. He knew Thursday night that the people around his table, that at least two of them, were going to betray him in significant ways. He was aware that the rest of them would scatter like sheep, right? He's aware of all of this, and yet his love is so profound. He serves them. He institutes the Lord's Supper that we still use today. And he welcomes all of them around that particular 
table. Matthew 26 ends the day like this. It says, and after singing a hymn, I'm guessing it was a cappella. <laughs> after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's a good day. Come next Sunday. Let's talk about what happens from there. Great God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the capacity that you have to love us despite the capacity that we have for betrayal. Lord, humble us. Help us to realize that we are your servant and in being your servant, we will obey the example and the command that you have given us to serve each other. Lord, whatever grudge we have that's holding back the power of our prayers because we are too proud to forgive, may we find forgiveness. Lord, what would you have us understand and hear about not just what we've read this morning, but about the things that are going on on the inside? What would you have us hear? Lord, perhaps give us a glimpse at our own capacity to sin. Help us to be willing to go into that darkness, to acknowledge it with this idea of confession, to acknowledge it with some sense of admittance where we can say, I need you. God, thank you for good days. And thank you for Thursday. And Lord, I thank you that you've been so generous to give us the details of this particular supper and the richness and uh, the depth of that relationship that we can see between Jesus and his disciples in that final moment. May we have that same depth that rich depth of relationship right here in this church. What would you have us do, Lord, to draw closer to each other and to serve one another? Lord, be with us this week as we continue to walk day by day, not only in your word, not only in thought, but in communion with each other. Help us to observe the steps of Jesus and, and the things that he taught, the things that he did, the mercy that he had. Help us to arrive on Friday with courage, help us to explore the death that he went through, and ultimately, Lord, the resurrection. Sunday is a good day. Thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.